Welcome to the Oxley Bomb MotoGP podcast. Welcome back to the Oxley Bomb MotoGP podcast with me, Matt Otis, former racer, TT winner, blah, 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 and Peter Bond, uh, world championship winning crew chief and data engineer. So, you know, I'm the kind of journalist who used to race and he's the engineer that really knows what's going on. <laughs> um, and, and this is our second uh, podcast of the summer break and we hope we're in, you're enjoying it. I mean, I'm already getting to the point where I'm kind of kind of ready for another MotoGP round, to be honest, but there you go. I just, I, I can't believe that I'm already want, want to go back again. It's like a kind of illness or a drug. No, it's a drug. That's what it is. Um, so what we're going to talk about this week is a really strange question that if you'd asked somebody this question, I mean, two, three years ago, people would have looked at you and gone, you've lost your mind. And the question is, will the Japanese quit MotoGP? Because, wow, they've been completely humiliated this year so far. There's been eight races, which means 24 podiums, and all but two of those podiums have been filled by European motorcycles. The German GTP a few weeks ago was the first since the 1969 Adriatic GP without a single Japanese machine in the top 10. That's 54 years ago. And I mean, you know, this has been, obviously this hasn't happened overnight, but it's it's been coming in the last few years. The 2020 Styrian GP during the COVID season was the first all European MotoGP podium since Sweden in 1973, which... Um, was two MV Augustas, uh, Phil Reed and Gianfranco Bonera, I think, followed by Kiwi Kim Newcomb on a, on a Koenig, which was, uh, if you don't know, was powered by a two-stroke outboard outboard marine engine, if you want to know how things have changed in the last 50 years. But just very quickly on, on the Kim Newcomb thing, if you, if you want something to watch during the break, the documentary made about Kim Newcomb and the Koenig called Love, Speed and Loss, you'll find it on various... Um, you know, you'll be able to download it from various people is amazing. Love, speed and loss. Just a quickie if you want to watch that. So, I mean, you know, obviously we're, we're talking about, oh, my God, the Japanese are in such trouble and such trouble. But, you know, the reason that's happened is because the Europeans have turned the game around, have changed the game. And I, so I think rather than consoling Honda and Yamaha, we should start off by congratulating Aprilia, Ducati and KTM for, for the amazing work because they, they didn't get to where they are by luck. Um, how do you see that? How do you see them turning it around, Peter? You know, hard to say, hard to start because it's such a huge change of, of forces. And I actually now looking back at, at how it was, it's a little bit like there was a playground of the Japanese manufacturers and they all had sort of an, uh, an unwritten law. You play with the games, you, you play on our play garden and we do it on our rules. And one of the rules was you don't change a lot. In the winter, you go back and your fresh uh, batch of engineers just coming from the university design something really, really new and half of it is rubbish and half of it works a little bit. And that's how they did it for years, except for one time when Honda decided, okay, two strokes are bad, four strokes is the future. We love four strokes and they forced the whole racing world to go to four strokes. But that's basically the only thing that came from then that was really new because they were always racing with motorbikes as we know them. Regular motorbikes, you know, the wheels, the engine and the pitching of the thing and how you should ride them, how you 
do. So th there came in more and more electronics and stuff, but it still was a normal motorbike. And it's not like it was not allowed by the rules. The rules are actually very, very open. As usually, the rules are written usually in delay. When something goes really out of hand, they will change the rules. So there were not a lot of rules except for a four-stroke and, and a maximum board and a capacity. You can say it's brilliant what the Europeans did, but it was just, you know, it was hard to not do it better. When they really started putting money at it and say, we want to go there, the Europeans, they just read the rule book and they didn't really need to look for, for real strange areas and corners that nobody looked for before. There was just a whole lot of things possible except fitting a turbo. And they just started doing that. And that's the first shock and, and the smack in the face for the, Jap for the Japanese manufacturers in the second one. Because it's for them, it must have been like, whoa, 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 whoa what, what are you doing now? This is not how we used to play on our playground. <laughs> yeah. Well, the rule wasn't really written. We didn't sign anything. We just sort of agree all the time. And the second thing is they speed up the development a lot. So they decided if something is not working at one race, before we go to the other one, even if it's just one week, we start at the 3D printer, we have new triple clamps, we bring another sashi with another swing arm pivot, and we just, if we sort of think we should look in some direction, we do it overnight. And the Japanese, on the other hand, they need to have 20,000 reports proving that they need to go in some direction. Everybody has to agree, all sorts of committees has to agree for that report, and then finally somebody gets the job to make that part. So that was way too slow. And they didn't really respond to it at all. So that was the situation and that still is the situation. And maybe that last thing is the most shocking for me. You know, you, things are changing. Things have changed quickly. But already two, three years ago, it was fully clear for the Japanese manufacturer. They have to speed up the development. And you can't keep on. And exactly at that time, COVID came, which is really bad timing. But now in 2023, you can't still blame COVID. No. Um, and that, that's how I look at it. So big applause for the Europeans. But it was like, <laughs> it was like, I don't don't say it was easy to do, but it was not like impossible and fuck where they found that, uh, that creativity and where they found this very rare material to make this new part. No, 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 no. We're not there. It's not Formula 1 yet. It's just like it was all on a really slow pace for years and the Europeans came in and they say, well, probably we can speed up the whole thing a little bit. <laughs> and that's what I did. That's how I look at it. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, there's been moments kind of throughout history um, where where there's been hints of this kind of thing happened. Many, 30 years ago, I used to work for King Kenny, Team Roberts. And, um, you know, he was always, you know, when he was with, with Yamaha and he was always complaining at how long it took stuff to get out of Yamaha and not that, you know, he, so he had Bud Axeland in the States. 20 years ago, eh? Yeah, work, 30 years ago, working on cylinders, you know, when the 1993 Yamaha chassis didn't work properly, he got one of those rocks, you know, made in France, rock chassis made in France. And, you know, he, he, Kenny was really pushing in that way. And obviously then, built his own bike finally. So there have been various instances over the last few decades. I remember also in going back even further, my first Grand Prix season, 1988, when the Honda NSR 500 was a nightmare. So it was when Jeremy Burgess was working with Wayne Gardner. So they went to the um, HRC workshop in, in Alst in Belgium and just basically chopped the front end off and, and redid it, just basically remade the geometry. So, you know, there have been examples of, of, of people saying, you know, we need to do it here, we need to do it now. But you're completely right. In general, the Japanese thing is slow, steady space of development, you know, and always has been. And the bikes always look pretty much the same. I mean, you know, you look at the, you just have to look at the bikes to, to realize where, where Honda and Yamaha are getting left behind. I mean, they still look pretty much like what they looked a few years ago, whereas the Aprilia, the uh, Ducati and the, and now the KTM look completely different. You know, I mean, you, you can literally just take one look at them and go. So, and, and as, as Peter said, you know, I think Gigi, to me, Gigi was the one that started it, Delina at Ducati. He was like, okay, I'm going to read the MotoGP rule book like F1 teams read the F1 rule book. 
basically looking for holes. And like you say, he didn't have to look very far. Okay, you can do aerodynamics, you can do ride height devices, you can do hole shot devices, you can do mass dampers. And unlike F1, where the rules are kind of made by the by the people that run the show, in MotoGP, the rules are basically run by the manufacturers. They have to work together with Dorna and so on. But but basically, the MSMA kind of own the rules, basically. And they have to make a... Every rule has to be decided unanimously. So, you know, even if some factories wanted to get rid of aero, as they certainly did, I mean, KTM hated it. You know, I still do, but they have no uh, option but to go down that road if they want to win. You know, five, there's only five factories left now. If four of them want all aero to go or whatever, then that's still not enough. You know, you've got to have a unanimous decision. So, you know, it's a kind of um, strange situation. A a colleague of mine, Dimitri uh, Stathopoulos, who he was at Assen talking to Stefan Bradle, the HRC test rider. And Bradle told him that to do a decent lap time on the Honda, he has to follow some because the bike breaks better and turns better when he's behind another bike. He can't do the same lap time in clean <laughs> air, which, wow, <laughs> that that really shows you that, <laughs> that Honda's aero isn't quite right, being polite. You know, if, if your bike works better in dirty air than, than, than clean air, wow. I mean, that's kind of pretty uh, ass about face, as we say. Um, so, yeah, I... You know, so are people at Honda considering quitting? Are people at Yamaha considering quitting? We don't really know. And all we have to go on is decisions like Suzuki quitting last year. And Peter got some really good information about the real reason why Suzuki um, quit, which which makes you realise how illogical and weird a lot of these decisions are. Peter, tell us about that. Well, yeah. <laughs> OK, I can't name the source, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he's right. And I mean, you and I, everybody was realising at the moment that it came, the timing and the way it came, there was chaos and panic. It was not like, OK, finally, the, the decision that was made two months ago on higher levels is now giving to the troops. No, no, no. There was something really odd going wrong. And what I was told is that like Suzuki made also diesel engines for Toyota, producing them and developing them together with the software. And that's where things went a little bit wrong. Remember Volkswagen and the diesel gate? Well, apparently Suzuki did something similar for Toyota. Toyota got shoot big time for it. So it was quite a costly affair, which in the end almost gave Toyota the right over Suzuki. And they didn't went public with it, but Toyota suddenly, or suddenly more or less started to, uh, to be in control of at least big parts of Suzuki. And one of the things they say to make them really, really feel the pain is you can stop your favorite game, MotoGP, now, because that's going to hurt a lot. And it explains how it happened so it makes sense to me it makes sense in a, in a lot of way and yeah that's what i've heard and it's something like that must have been behind it so yeah. let's say this is the case and then it's not too worrying because that also means it's not a sign honda and yamaha are going to go the same route but coming back to honda what you just explained like the honda being better in dirty air <laughs> than in clean air this is the same honda that a couple of years ago when the rules when ducati really came with aerodynamics and honda was sort of opposite it didn't like it but I remember also Honda saying, you, you don't want to go into aero war with us. Yeah. We're from Formula One. We know, we know things. They build jets. How pain. It's not really like that. So, But that's the same Honda that quit Formula One and suddenly came back as well. So sometimes these decisions are made on levels and with a logic that can be reversed quickly. Exactly. That, that's a point I wanted to make that, you know, 
the Suzuki decision, well, it wasn't a decision, it wasn't, it was a Toyota decision by the sounds of it. You know, these things don't happen as easily or logically as we think. You know, there's political reasons behind them as well as commercial. And and as as Peter just said, you know, Honda exiting F1 and then returning two years later, it's, it just shows how, you know, decisions, even at that highest level over such a big thing, they make a decision and then suddenly, you know, if they, I think they announced another year later that they were going to come back. I mean, I'm not quite sure. I mean, the good thing about the Suzuki thing is that we can blame it on car people now, can't we? Which is nice. <laughs> Got nothing to do with bike people. We can blame it on the car people ruining our ruining our show. So there you go. The Honda not working in, in clean air is a really weird thing. And and where do we go from here? Who, how are they going to be able to recover? Are Honda going to be able to recover? Are Yamaha going to be able to recover? And if we look at Yamaha first, basically now with all this aero that we keep going on about, which has completely changed the game, 100% changed the game. Everything is about aero. If you're carrying all this downforce aero, downforce aero creates drag. And to, to deal with that drag, you need a lot of horsepower. And this is one reason why Yamaha are getting deeper and deeper into trouble, in my opinion, that they don't have... The, the horsepower from their inline four to run a ton of aero. I mean, look at the Yamaha. It's got less aero than anyone, even even less than Honda. So the kind of Yamaha situation worries me more. I mean, they have former Ferrari Formula One uh, engineer, Luca Marmarini, designing them a new engine for next year. Who knows? Maybe he'll make some amazing breakthrough. But the fact is, an inline four, it's got a longer crankshaft. It's got five main bearings instead of three, bigger pumping losses. There's a lot of kind of negatives from pure horsepower-wise of an inline four against a, a, a V4. So, you know, to me, that's quite a worry. You know, if, if that Marmarini engine doesn't do the job next year, I, I would imagine there'll be a lot of Yamaha management going, "What? why are we doing this? You know, I mean, it's the same when every, any factory is getting smashed to bits by their rivals. You know, basically they're paying, spending 50, 100 million a year to be made look to look like idiots on the television every weekend. I mean, that's just not a good spend of, <laughs> that's not a good way to spend your money, is it? You know, you're better off going, you know what, we're out of here. We're out of here. Which kind of brings us to um, the talk about concessions. Dawn have said that they want to change the concessions rules to allow Honda and Yamaha to get back to the top, to get back to the front quicker than they would otherwise have been able to. But what do you think Ducati, Aprilia and KTM are going to think about that? They have managed to come back from kind of nowhere, basically all of them, um, to being the most the fastest bikes on the grid with the current concessions rules. So why on earth are they going to say, okay, sure, Honda, Yamaha. Yeah, no, of course, we're going to help you. We're going to give you a hand up. Please, we really want to make sure that you're you're able to beat us again. That's not going to happen, is it, Peter? <laughs> no. Well, it's quite funny when you explain it like that, and it makes it even more clear. Never, never, never. But there's another reason, too. It's not like we have seen such a promising things coming from the Japanese, but just, just not enough. It's not like we get the idea that they're working really, really hard. They're working the airs off. They come with really ingenious things, but they just miss a little bit of testing time. No, not at Oh, not at all. It's so disappointing what they come up with. It's almost like nothing. So for me, the project at both companies is the problem, especially on a higher level. They have no idea what they actually need from the bike. So they just bring in some parts, but there is no direction clear in. Yamaha should be working like hell on getting more power out of that engine because as soon as they have a little bit more power, they can update the arrow and then suddenly they will be more or less competitive or going in the right direction. Now they have a bike that until half a year ago was able to do a really good lap time, but only when he was completely alone. So it was already getting a little bit... Uh 
was a bit silly because that's not how the racing is done. The racing now is again, like a long time ago, it's a horsepower race. The more horsepower you have, the more arrow you can carry, the more arrow you can carry, the more grip you have. Up to the point that you still should be able to control that power, but with all the electronics, it's not as sensitive as it used to be in the past. So it's a full-blown on horsepower race. For horsepower, if you can't fit a turbo on a V in line, you need the V4 point. And Yamaha is so far behind on on engine um, research history and know-how on V4s that I can't really see them making a, a competitive V4 engine all of a sudden because... It's not just that you fit in another engine. You also, you have all your, all your mass, all your energy from your motorbike is in another direction, is in, on another place in the whole vehicle, which puts you back 15 years in development to do that. Honda, on the other hand, has already an engine. All, Honda likes engines a lot. They usually make sweet engines that never die. They, they already have the, they have the engine. They have some horsepower, not as much as they supposed to have over the competition, but they're okay. They need to find the way with mostly with the electronics and update the arrow. That sounds still like a lot of work, but it's a lot less work than making a V4 engine and go yeah. completely from scratch again, like Yamaha needs to do now, in my opinion. And Suzuki was about to get there as well. Suzuki won the championship and was competitive, but it was not by luck, but there were strange circumstances and it was not going to be a very competitive bike after that year, as we saw. So there we are, V4. No. Well, I mean, you know, the bike did win, two, the Suzuki did win two of the last three races of last year, but oh, it's, <laughs> motorbike racing is such a strange thing. I mean, I'm thinking back to Valencia, you know, Rin's got out, Alex Rin's got out in front, and that's the way to win a race now, you know, with an inline four, just as, as Yamaha always used to do it. Um, and at yeah. Phillip Island, well, Phillip Island's a very, un, you know, it's a completely unique racetrack where I think the Suzuki in the first year there in 2015 with Vinales, 2016, 2015, I can't remember, with Vinales on, finished six seconds behind the winner when the thing was a dog, when the Suzuki was a dog. So, you know, Phillip Island is not a good, you can't say, well, if, the, you know, a bike that works at Phillip Island won't necessarily work anywhere else. You know, it's all about corner speed, horsepower power isn't that isn't that important um so yeah I, I, we can see a big political battle coming up between dorna and uh, the msma uh well in particular the the european manufacturers dorna say look we need the yeah you know that the, they are concerned and I, they've told me themselves they are concerned about losing the the Japanese, which is why they're trying to help but um you know i, I just can't see the, <laughs> the european manufacturers saying yeah Sure, we'll help them. I just, I just don't see that. So I, I can see a big political battle coming up between um, Dorna and Ducati, and there will be lots of, well, you do this, we'll do, you know, we'll. Basically, it all comes down to horse trading, and if you do this, I'll scratch your back. You know, you do that, you scratch mine. You know, it's kind of all, you know, ev every little thing will be fought for. I mean, you know, really, they should have all their meetings. They should broadcast them live, or at least do a, um, a highlights package, shouldn't we? Which see the Espaletas banging the table and Chibati banging the table and all that kind of stuff. I would enjoy that. Um, which kind of brings us also to the whole Mark Marquez situation, which is obviously a very live issue. Um, he's on the third year of a four-year contract, you know, signed when Honda and Marquez were just ruling everything, you know, so why on earth would Marquez want to go anywhere else? I mean, the pretty, I cannot remember the last time a rider signed, a, a top rider signed a four-year contract in MotoGP. I'm not sure it's ever been done. I mean, well, it probably has, but a long, 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 long time ago. Uh, so, you know, what we've seen of Marquez the last few races, just so many crashes. I kind of, until the last couple of races, I thought, no, no, I think he'll, I think he'll stick with Honda, you know. And then we saw Mugello when he crashed and kind of basically, you know, you could see him turn around and blaming the bike and then on a horrible weekend in Germany. And, you know, he must be going, you know what, you know, how long is it going to take 
pondered to get out of this hole. I don't have that much time. And at Assen, Alberto Puj, the Repsol Honda team manager, said, we, we won't try and keep him to his contract. If he wants to go, we'll let him go. Because, you know, there's nothing worse than having a rider who doesn't want to ride for you, riding for you. I mean, what, what's he going to do? I mean, you have to put your life on the line every every day to ride a MotoGP bike at the front. And if you don't want to ride for the people you're riding for, you're not going to do that. So what's the point? You know, they might as well just let him go. Which then brings us to the question everyone wants to know, uh, where's he going to go? And I'm not a big one on speculation, but um, we know Paolo Giabatti of Ducati said they don't want him. You know, they've got all they need. Ducati, they've got everything they need. There's no no reason they want to bring Marquez in there. And, you know, they want to beat him. They, want, they don't want him to win with Ducati. They want to beat him on something else. KTM are pretty much full with riders. My own personal personal if if i which leaves aprilia if i was aprilia which i'm not but if i was i would go you know what uh maverick vinales wonderful rider super nice guy etc 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 but you know he just never performs consistently you know he will he will have one amazing race and or, or an amazing day of practice or an amazing two days of practice and and then but he just cannot put the, the uh, results together consistently. And mm, I don't know. My feeling was I, if I was at Aprilia, I would go, okay, we're going to buy Vinales out of his contract and we'll bring Mark Marquez in. And, you know, Marquez, uh, you know, I don't think Marquez will even care that much about money. You know, he, he how, how many millions has he got in the bank? 20, 30, 40? I don't know. But he'll have a lot of money in the bank. And he, you know, he wants to win races again. That's what he wants to do. And, and if he goes to ride for Aprilia for not a lot of money, um, you know, Red Bull will pay him a ton of money. And I, I think he could win on the Aprilia. I absolutely do. I think the Aprilia is good enough, without a doubt, to win, and, and especially with him on it. And wow, that would be some prospect. But of course, then what are the knock-on effects of that? Where do Honda go if they if they lose Marquez? You know, so so there's a you know we're in a really kind of everything seems to be yeah a bit of a you know we're sort of going into the unknown. Let's say. Well, where, where does Honda want to go? Probably Honda wouldn't be too sad seeing Mark leave because they find themselves also already for years in in a difficult but luxury difficult position they can only win with Mark they never won with another rider they destroyed riders careers or, or physically whatever but they couldn't win with it until Paul Spargaro arrived and they really made another bike with more load over the rear Paul was very good in Mandalika which was a strange event he was on the podium in Qatar beating Mark Marquez on the same bike so that was a complete other Honda bike Mark was very very unhappy with that bike he didn't like it at all he was beaten by Paul but Paul was on the podium with it so they started to change a lot on the bike and on God knows what and they completely lost the plot. That was probably the last good Honda bike that I've seen. Um, so Honda knows it's either with Mark but then he has to win because nobody else can ride that bike that we developed together with Mark or we say ciao to Mark and start all over again from scratch which they probably need to do now. So... <sighs> He doesn't want to go to Ducati either. Ducati don't want him. For sure, they have spoken in the past a lot of time about a lot of money, but now they already won the championship. So now they can say, no, Mark, we don't need you. And Mark doesn't need to go there because if you're going to Ferrari or you go to Ducati, you want to be the first or at least the first after many years that bring the title. Otherwise, it's not special enough. KTM, they have too many riders. I mean, we're already speculating where Acosta needs to go. Augusto Fernandez and so on. And so they have too many riders. Um, yeah, that's it. Yamaha, we don't need to speak about. So, and Aprilia. Puff. Yeah, I completely agree with your point about about Maverick. I mean, he's such an unbelievable huge talent. 
but he forgets to deliver, which is mainly because he shits in riding in a group. And at some point in the weekend, you're riding in a group, especially usually in the race, first couple of laps. He has shit starts, doesn't know where to go, where he's in a group. So he's losing a lot of time being in the group or like in Asse, he crashed trying to do something from way too far ahead and then crashing. Uh, Le Mans the same. He was going for the winner, I think even, but he was so, again, you know, if you take, if you wait one, two corners more, you outbreak Panyaya properly and you're surely there and you, you pass him safe. But somehow he can't help himself because he's one of the nicest guys to speak to. But Aprilia have to look further. It's not the same story for Alais, but Alais never has been considered. I don't know about you, Matt, but for me, I mean, he's very, very interesting to listen to. He has a lot of opinions <laughs> and he's keen to share them with us. And he's quite clever as well, but he's never, he was never one of the real top four, top five, top six MotoGP talents. He's putting the bike there every now and then, last year especially, many, many times, which for me shows that the Aprilia bike has a lot of potential. It's one of the, probably the most talented bike <laughs> on the grid. Now I need to think about Vinales, but it just didn't deliver enough. Sometimes that's the team. They can get a little bit lost left and right. But I think if you put somebody like Mark on there, give it some time, probably not even a lot of time, it's going to be a different game. So yeah, we hate speculating, but I'm doing it. I would love to see Mark going to Aprilia. <laughs> yeah, it would certainly be interesting. Certainly be interesting. And um, yeah, yeah. And, and sort of finally, I think we've kind of you know, the, the big question, you know, here we are talking about, oh, you know, it's all the Europeans are winning and oh my God, what happens if the Japanese go? But, you know, obviously it wouldn't be good if they did go or one of them went. It would be, you know, the more manufacturers, I mean, I, I really miss Suzuki more and more, you know, it's just that kind of, you know, to have another inline four and it was such a lovely little bike and, you know, they just did things their own way and, and it worked sometimes. Um, so I really miss Suzuki. Uh, so of course we'd miss Honda if they went, of course we'd miss Yamaha if they went and it would be not a disaster for the championship, but it wouldn't be good but on the other hand does it really matter you know if the if ktm aprilia ducati can make enough bikes which without a doubt they can you know just be eight each you know and i mean i mean yeah i, I don't think they, they they i think they would be happy to do it you know maybe the the third with ducati that their last team would be on last year's bikes you know it makes it a lot easier so you had an entirely european grid okay does that really matter because for 40 well 30 40 years the, the MotoGP grid was all japanese motorcycles pretty much you know there would be a kajiva in there and then and then ducati turned up but you know for years and years and years uh decades it was all japanese bikes and nobody really complained you know it was just the way it was certainly you know when i got interested in bikes was just at the end of the mv era so, you know, all I've known from first I was into bikes was a Japanese MotoGP grid, you know, full of Suzuki's and Yamaha's and then Honda's. Um, so does it really matter? I mean, that, that I think that and I think that's just a completely personal view. Does it matter? You know, some people say, yes, it does matter. Some people say, yes, it's not. So I think it's a personal view. I, I certainly wouldn't want Honda or Yamaha to go. But Peter, you're completely right. They, they need to completely change the way they work. They need to realize that the game has completely changed. And they to me, they need to go after. I mean, Kate, one reason KTM have got so good again is because they've taken so many engineers away from Ducati. You know, you go to the you go to the manufacturer that's doing the business and you take away their engineers, you know, okay, this guy is going to know what to do to our bike. And that's what Honda and Yamaha should be doing. They should be hiring Ducati guys, hiring European guys. They, they should be setting up development centers in, in Europe, you know, so they're like F1 teams be based in Europe. And we know uh, that Yamaha can do an awful lot of stuff at their base in Italy. But um, I don't think Honda can do so much at their, you know, I think it's more of a lo logistics base rather than a R and d or a, you know, a, a an R&D base in, in Barcelona. So to me, that's what the Japanese, they need to completely change the way they work. 
And to me, they just seem a bit kind of paralyzed at the moment. They just don't know what to do. You know, they're sort of in a bit of a panic. And uh, yeah, they've got to change what they're doing. Well, that leaves us with other European manufacturers or even Kawasaki. But the, the first European manufacturer that we can speak about is BMW. And there's Kawasaki. They're both experts in inline four cylinders. So, and it is a horsepower race. It, with the current regulations, that's where everything starts, of aerodynamics, it is a horsepower race. If they could, like car racing does, um, regulate the amount of downforce that bikes and the balance that they can develop, then it's going to be less of a horsepower race and you can come in with other engines. Because I don't see BMW or Kawasaki building a V4 just for racing that that's too too big a step at the moment i think i think they're pretty keen to stay in world superbike although one of them is doing a better job than the others oh both struggle at the moment actually yeah i mean you know ktm they're they're linked up with mv now aren't they mv augusta so you know ktm can you know brand you know that we've got ktm gas gas and mv augusta i mean at least you've got (laughs) different bike names and different um you know paint jobs and everything i mean the 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 thing is that racing i mean it's been that way for a while has become much more of an international thing you know Japanese used to have Japanese engineers. You know, the, the Italians used to have, well, the Japanese still do have Japanese. The Italians used to, you know, it's, you, you've got to search for your talent all over the place now, you know. Um, I think that's really important. You know, like like Ducati using Robin to, to Louis for, you know, the German guy who invented their mass damper and their um, ride height device and whole shot device. So you've got to take, you can't just be inward looking. You've got to be mu- much more outward looking. Um, okay, I think we're done, aren't we? Anything else you want to say, Peter? No? But, cool. <laughs> no, that's more, yeah, just a small thing. The last thing when you were speaking was reminded me of for years, I've been in Ducati Corsa one year, so <laughs> that's not, and it's a long time ago, but from the contacts I still have there and some things never change. And one of the things that I'm sure didn't have changed that everybody in that motorsport valley uh, around, um, around Borgo Panigale, basically, if you can't be a a famous racer you want to be a really good engineer so everybody from university there goes to Borgo Panigale goes to Ducati they're really cheap actually they don't need to pay them a lot but they all dream of going to you know to be a very important engineer so it's in the culture it's in the history to go there to, you, you go to either Ferrari you go to Ducati or you go to Magneti Morelli and it used to be like that in Honda as well you know the top guys from the university in Tokyo they went straight to Honda usually to HSC and I don't think that's that's still the case because the reactions and the parts that are coming now from Honda don't smell like a lot of new fresh blood has has come in there. So like I said earlier, the project is the problem. The project. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks very much, Peter. Leaves me with one more thing, probably. Why not building engines, uh, Matt, sorry. <laughs> Why not building engines, calling Carlex and have another European manufacturer with somebody's engine? I mean, Formula One is full of it as well, because an engine is like a huge part of the project. And if you can have somebody else building your engine, you suddenly have more bikes on the grid. Don't be surprised if, if Dorna starts to play with the regulations in, in, in the money change thing with, with Ducati, that something like that becomes an option in the future. I would love it. I would love it because it also would keep a lot of um, engineers at work. Yeah, I mean, well, that's that's another reason why we we don't want to see a Honda and Yamaha leave. You know, I mean, you've got to think how many people work for those teams and how many you know families that is being you know uh, kept going. And and it's easy to lose hi- sight of the human side of it. You know, that if a, a, if a team does shut down, you know, that's eighty people out of a job and that's eighty families without a you know a, a decent income. So um, yeah, we just hope that everybody um, that the Japanese kind of crack on and start start doing what they need to do. And uh, so that's it. Uh, thank you for listening. 
thanks to Peter for joining us, as always. And thanks to his son, Sam, for being uh, our highly paid producer. Um, we'll see you next... Oh, no, I tell you what. <laughs> uh, next week, we're going to do a question and answer uh, podcast with you people asking the questions. So Peter and I will put it on our Twitter feed. You can, Or you can just start sending questions in now, but on you know over the weekend or uh, on Monday, uh, we'll, we'll put something up on Twitter and say, please tell us what questions you want us to answer in the next weekend's pod so thanks again for looking listening and uh, take it easy bye bye